The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Let's bow our heads together and go before the throne of grace before we begin our study. We'll begin with a few moments for a silent prayer just to make sure we are in fellowship and that we are prepared to uh, take in the Word of God because the Holy Spirit must fill us so that uh, He can teach us the Word of God and it can be a part of our lives. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate the magnificent depth and breadth of your love and your grace toward us, we are indeed impressed by your magnificence. And Father, we gather together because you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are our redeemer. You have planned from eternity past to provide a grace way of salvation for us that we might be saved not by works of righteousness, but according to your mercy, because Jesus Christ died as our substitute on the cross. And you have seen fit to take the time to reveal to us through many prophets and apostles throughout the ages your wisdom and your word. And so the highest form of worship is for us to sit and study your word, to learn how we should live so that we might pursue spiritual maturity, grow as believers through the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might glorify you through our lives. So now, Father, as we continue our study of prayer, we pray that the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us, that we might uh, understand and apply your word in this area of prayer, and that we might grow as believers in Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Just a few points of review to make sure you have what we, some of the points that we covered this morning. I will review most of these points just about every session, so if I go fast, Just make sure you're here the next hour and you can fill in the blanks. Remember the definition. Prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, give thanks, intercede for others, and convey our personal needs, petitions, and conduct intimate conversations with God. Secondly, prayer is for believers only. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And because of sin, man is excluded from the presence of God. And that's about where we stopped the last time. We saw that God in His character is perfect righteousness and absolute justice. Man, because of sin, is minus R. He lacks righteousness. Perfect righteousness can have nothing to do with the lack of righteousness. Scripture says that all of our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds, all of those things that we are proud of and think somehow must impress God, God says all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So nothing that man can do can impress God. There are no works, there's no endeavor, there's no thoughts, there's nothing that man can do that can gain the approbation and gain the, uh, the, the benevolence and the grace of God. God must, we cannot work for grace. I've had people tell me that, oh, you have earned grace. No, you cannot earn grace. Grace is a free gift. What the righteousness of God condemns because it is not consistent with the absolute standards of God, the justice of God then must condemn. And the condemnation that falls to all men is that they are spiritually dead. And if they are spiritually dead when they die physically, then they will spend eternity in eternal punishment in the lake of fire. But God has, in His grace, provided a solution to solve the sin problem. And that was that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die as our substitute on the cross. The Scripture says that God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. So that at the cross, every sin 
that you will ever commit was paid for by Jesus Christ. There's no sin that you ever committed or will ever commit that God did not know about in eternity past. Billions and billions of years ago, God knew every single sin that every single human being would commit. You may commit sins in the future that surprise and shock you, that perhaps devastate your friends because they never expected anything like that of you. And because it has shocked you so much, you feel like it has separated you from God in ways that never before thought of. And yet God knew about that sin in eternity past, and so those sins were paid for completely by Jesus Christ on the cross. So that at salvation, sin is no longer the issue. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? The issue is whether or not you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then the cross is applied to you as an individual. And at the moment of your faith and trust in Christ, God the Father imputes perfect righteousness to you. He credits that to your account. And because you now have perfect righteousness, God declares you justified. Each believer is declared, that does not, is declared just. That does not mean that he is experientially righteous. It means that as far as God's justice is concerned, the righteousness of God has been credited to his account. And because God looks at that perfect righteousness, he declares the believer to be justified. And on that basis, we can have uh, fellowship with God. We can have an eternal relationship with God. And we can have eternal life. Only the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can come to God the Father in prayer. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but the grace of God, the love of God, provides a solution through the grace of God. Only children of the Father can converse with the Heavenly Father. But not all human beings are believers, only those who are saved. I remember in my uh, first church I was just astounded because there were many people who did not understand that God was not the father of unbelievers. And it's amazing how many people out there in the world think that God is the father of everybody. And that goes back to the old liberal doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God. I grew up in a, in a doctrinal church. As some of you know, I grew up in a church called Baraka Church in Houston. And that was just a phenomenal privilege. When I was uh, still in diapers, my parents started going to Baraka. And I grew up in the, in the nursery there and going to the teen class when I was in high school. And um, I began to think that I had the gift of, of pastor-teacher and began to uh, listen to tapes a lot. I was kind of a, one of those strange high school kids. Every day I would come home from school and I would uh, turn on my tape recorder and I would listen to uh, a tape for about a half an hour to an hour. And then I would do my homework and then uh, eat, have supper. And then after supper I would go to Bible class a couple of nights a week, and uh, on the weekend. So that was my training and background. Then I went to college at um, uh, Stephen F. Austin State University where I majored in history and English, thinking that someday I might use that in relationship to the pastoral ministry. But uh, at that point, I was uh, beginning to realize all of the uh, responsibilities that came with being a pastor, and so I decided I wanted to do other things, but the Lord kept shutting doors until finally the only door that was open was... Dallas Theological Seminary, and so my, I really didn't want to apply. My grades had uh, not been that great in college because I had enjoyed myself the first couple of years in college instead of uh, studying a lot. My mother kept saying, all they can say is no, just send in your application. So to get her off my back, I sent in my application, and they said yes, much to my surprise. <clears throat> so I knew that God must have a plan for me in that direction, and I went to Dallas, and um, uh, pursued my master's in theology with a major in Hebrew and Old Testament studies. I had also had the privilege when I was growing up at Baraka to meet many men uh, who were some 5 to 10, 15 years older than me who were going to Dallas Seminary, men like, uh, like Hal Lindsey, men like uh, uh, Charlie Clough, who some of you know because he used to come and speak over here at, uh, uh, with Jay Chappell, uh, George Meisinger, uh, Jim Myers, who's spoken here, uh, he's a missionary over in uh, Kiev in Ukraine right now, was uh, the choir director, uh, music director at uh, Baraka back when I was in high school. And then uh, I got to meet him in, uh, really on a more personal level and get to really know him a couple of years ago when I went over to Russia for uh, about a month and spoke over there and we got to be uh, very good friends. But I was used to growing up in this sort of a cloistered environment where I was always around um, believers who knew some doctors. 
So I was just amazed when I got out to a church where people really didn't have much of a doctrinal background, and they thought God was everybody's father. And I began to have my uh, view of life reshaped by being around believers who didn't know very much, and that was sort of a rude awakening because I had always been around people who were fairly well informed doctrinally. But God is not everyone's father. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. In fact, Jesus confronted the Pharisees at one time and said, You are of your father the devil. The unbeliever is not one of God's children. Only one of God's children has the privilege to converse with the Heavenly Father. So prayer is for believers only. A third point we covered briefly this morning is you do not pray because you are, uh, you know, do not pray to become spiritual. You pray because you are spiritual. Prayer is a consequence of spiritual growth not a cause of spiritual growth. Prayer is a privilege of your priesthood as a believer in the church age, and to develop this privilege, you must first grow spiritually. Uh, our prayer life is no stronger than our spiritual life. Uh, people always confuse the results of spirituality with the causes of spirituality. And as we learn doctrine and assimilate in our lives, then the results of that are an increase in our prayer life an increase in other aspects of our, both our priesthood and our ambassadorship. Fourth, we saw that prayer demands concentration and thought and is based on doctrine and not emotion. Fifth, we saw that prayer should be the highest priority in our life after learning Bible doctrine. We are mandated to pray, to devote ourselves to prayer. It should be the highest priority in the believer's life and we should uh, earnestly pursue it with a tremendous amount of effort and intensity and not let anything uh, prevent us from prayer. Sixth, our, as believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. We fail because we do not understand the will of God, the plan of God. We do not understand doctrine related to prayer. Now, as we were concluding the first se- session, we were talking about how man is excluded from the presence of God. And we saw that at the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden and God surrounded the Garden of Eden with a core of cherubim who guarded it with flaming swords so that man could no longer have access to the presence of God. Now God did indeed provide a solution at that time related to redemption, but we will come back and look at that a little later on this morning. At this point, I just want to emphasize this point of man's exclusion from the presence of God. So the next passage we were to look at was in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Now in the context of Exodus 19, we find that the nation of Israel, some two to three million people, just imagine that, that's roughly the size of Houston, Texas, the number of people that Moses led out of Egypt. So you can just imagine the administrative and logistic nightmare that must have been to move that number of people to pack up their tents and their bags and their sheep and their cattle and their donkeys and uh, their tents and move them across the desert. But they had moved out and three, some three months after they left Egypt, they found themselves down on the Sinai Peninsula near Mount Sinai. And here a most remarkable thing happens. It's the only time you have an occurrence of this type in all of Scripture. God verbally addresses the entire nation. Now, as I understand it, I've never been there, but I have several friends who have, that Mount Sinai is a, is a high mountain and you have a, a, a valley or almost a canyon that extends um, on the northern aspect or northern slope of Mount Sinai. And it is such that the acoustics are, are so perfect that if you stand at the upper end of this, this canyon and talk, your voice will reverberate all the way down the canyon. So at the very top you have God and down in this spread out along the length of this canyon you have three million Jews. And God is going to address the nation Israel. First he prepares them and through Moses he warns the people that he is going to speak to them. And you note their response in Exodus 19 verse 8. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And, God, and Moses brought back the wor- words of the people to the Lord. Now notice their enthusiasm. God's going to speak to us. Yes, this is wonderful. And they get excited. And anything God says, we will do. We are 
going to listen to God. They were full of unbounded enthusiasm before they even heard a word. Then in verse 9 we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So God is going to speak to everyone, all two to three million of them. Notice, if you had been there with your tape recorder, you could have recorded the very voice of God. This isn't some sort of subjective religious experience where the people are imagining that that God is speaking to them just inside their own soul. This is an objective, verifiable reality. You could have taken your Sony recorder, set it down there, turned it on, held out the microphone, and recorded the very voice of God. Now look at verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. That means to set them apart. They have to be prepared. This word for consecration is the same word that is translated uh, to make holy or to sanctify, to set apart. It is to prepare them for the worship of God. So they have to go through certain things. They have to wash their garments. Washing is something that we will see over and over again takes place and it is usually symbolic or it is a, uh, a reference to uh, a type of confession of sin. So this is their, their con- uh, symbolic of confession. It's purely ceremonial and they have to wash their garments. Verse 11, And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set bounds for the people. In other words, they can't come past a certain point in the presence of God. There are boundaries. They're excluded from the presence of God. Set bounds for the people all around saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or even touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall get sick. No. Whoever touches the mountain shall have their wrist slapped. No. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. God doesn't fool around. God is making a vital point here that people cannot come into God's presence. They are excluded from His presence because of sin. He goes on in verse 13, No no hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned. See, even this guy who touched, crossed the border, touched it, he was to be stoned and nobody could even touch him. If somebody touched the one who had touched the holy ground, he too would be stoned. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So three days went by in which they went through their ceremonial rituals to cleanse themselves to be prepared to go into God's presence. Then, uh, verse 16, skip down to verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain. And lightning... Uh, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who are in the camp trembled. So the true fear of the Lord is put into them. They tremble. You've all heard the expression, well, such, so-and-so really put the fear of God into them. Well, that's a, an idiom drawn out of this, this incident. God, when you are confronted with the very presence of God, like Isaiah, falling flat on his face, crying out, uh, because he's in the presence of a holy God, the people were afraid. You don't see that unbounded emotionalism anymore. Oh God, whatever he said, this is going to be great. We'll listen to God. We'll hear every word. They are scared down to the very marrow of their bones. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Notice they can't look on God. They are excluded from the presence of God. Then we find in chapter 19 and 20, the first part of 20, uh, that God gives the Ten Commandments to the people and some other mandates and instructions. And then if you turn over to chapter 20, verse 18, we see what their response is after hearing the voice, the very voice of God. Exodus 20:18. And all the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not, God, let not God speak to us, lest we die. Notice the transition after hearing God. They don't want to hear God anymore. You tell us, Moses, you go up on the mountain, you get God's word, but we don't want to hear God anymore. They realize their own sinfulness. They realize their own uncleanness, their own uh, lack 
of ability to be in the presence of God and they don't want to have anything to do with it. When confronted with the very presence of God, it strikes fear into the heart of the sinner. I want you to notice too that God is not portrayed here as their buddy. He's not coming down off the mountain to put his arm around each individual and say, how are you doing? What can I do to help you? How are you feeling about this? It was kind of rough coming out of Egypt, wasn't it? You know, it was kind of hard. All you had to do was eat that unleavened bread and, and a lamb. You had to stand up while you were doing it. How do you feel about that? Is everything okay? Now, now you really had a tough time being slaves in Egypt. Uh, how do you feel about that as a victim? Isn't that tough? You're, you're just, no. God doesn't care about any of that. That is very anthropocentric. And that was one point we began to make in the uh, first hour is that our prayers and our relationship to God must be God-centered and not man-centered. And this is the tragedy of Christianity in America today is we've become psychologized and we have become man-centered in how we approach life. We no longer look at things from God's perspective but from man's perspective. God is not portrayed here as just some nice old uh, older gentleman with his cigar like George Burns. You know, all of this is typical of cheap, superficial American Christianity that wants to lower God to our standards instead of elevating man to the standards and the requirements of God. And throughout this, we see that God has definitely excluded man from His presence. Turn over a few more chapters to Exodus chapter 25, verse 18. Here we come to the description of the tabernacle which will be the same pattern for the temple later on. Now, the tabernacle is the tempor- temporary mobile uh, worship center for the nation. Outside, the outside border of the tabernacle, surrounded by uh, a curtain, there's only one entrance into the tabernacle, which uh, foreshadows that there is only one way into God's presence, and that is through Jesus Christ. The central aspect of the tabernacle is the holy place. The holy place itself is divided into two sections, the outer room and then the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies is the ark of the covenant. Inside the holy place you have three articles of furniture. You have the um, table of showbread which speaks of Jesus Christ as the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You have the uh, candlestick, which speaks of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. And then you have an altar of incense, which continually burns, which symbolizes the continual prayers of the saints rising up to God in heaven. Inside the Holy of Holies is marked off by a huge veil that is entered only once a year by by the high priest, you have the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a box of acacia wood that is overlaid with gold, which speaks of the hypostatic union, one of Ken's favorite words, the uh, union of the perfect deity of Jesus Christ with the humanity of Jesus Christ. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three items, the uh, Aaron's rod that budded, the pot of manna, and a copy of the Ten Commandments, all of which were represented different sins committed by the people. There's a heavy lid, and on that lid, there were two cherubim with their wings. I'm not a great artist here. Their wings touched in the middle, and they looked down, looking at the sin of the people inside the box. And once a year when the high priest entered in, he laid a bowl of blood from the sacrificial lamb on the Ark of the Covenant to picture the satisfaction of God for the sin problem. See, God is perfect righteousness and justice. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So God's righteousness and justice must be satisfied, and that's the word propitiation. They must be satisfied before God can let man into heaven. And that is portrayed here. This, this section of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. So man is excluded from the presence of God because the only person allowed into the Holy of Holies, which is the very presence of God, the Psalms say this is 
where God is enthroned above the cherubim. This is a picture of God's throne room. Now, before we started in our prayers, we said that we have confidence as believers to go before the throne of grace. We can have access directly to the throne of grace, but in the Old Testament, everyone is excluded from the throne of God except for the high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. But what has to happen before the high priest can enter into the presence of God? Well, first of all, there's only one way to the presence of God, and that's the entrance gate. The first thing he meets in the courtyard, in the outer courtyard, is the brazen altar. And there, there is a sacrifice, a sacrifice of a lamb without spot or blemish, which portrays the perfect Jesus Christ. When Jesus came at the beginning of his ministry to John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John said that, the Jews around knew what he was talking about, that he was talking about the sacrificial lamb that is, has his throat cut on this altar. This altar was the site where every morning and every night there was a lamb sacrificed for the sins of the people so that it was covered and crusted with the blood of sacrificial bulls and goats and lambs day after day after day. And it, and it probably stank and reeked of the, of the rotting animal blood there. But it gave a very strong visual message of the putrefaction of sin and what had to happen to cover sin. And it is a portrayal here of salvation. Now the interesting thing, we look at the Old Testament, there were three different kinds of priesthoods. There was the um, patriarchal priest, who was the head of the family. There was the uh, king priest, like Melchizedek, who was the king priest of Salem. And there was the Levitical priesthood that was established under the Mosaic Covenant. If you examine the Old Testament from cover to cover, you'll notice that nowhere is there a requirement that any of these priests be born again. Not one. There are all sorts of physical requirements. For example, a Levitical priest had to be descended from the tribe of Levi. He could, he could not have certain physical defects. If he did, then he was excluded from coming into the presence of God. But there's no mention that he had to be a believer. All the requirements pictured that, of course, but he did not have to be a believer. Everything he did was simply to follow certain procedures. This portrayed salvation. And the next article of furniture was the labor of a, a, a large washing bowl, golden washing bowl, that he would wash his hands and his feet. If he did not wash his hands and his feet, then he would die when he went into the uh, presence of God in the Holy of Holies. The labor represents confession and forgiveness of sins. And we'll come back and look at that in a little more detail uh, a little later on. But all of this portrays the fact that in order to get to the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, you had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi, specifically of Aaron, to be the high priest. Not everybody could go into the presence of God, only the high priest. And he had to follow certain ritual cleansing before he could get into the presence of God. And those cleansings portrayed with the with sacrifice, they portrayed his salvation. Secondly, they portrayed confession and forgiveness of sins because he washed his hands and his feet, which speak of what we do and where we go. And that is a portrayal of the sin in our lives, doing the wrong things and going to wrong places, etc. That, that portrayal. And then he would enter into the very presence of God on the basis of a uh, sacrifice of shed blood, which of course foreshadowed the spiritual death and separation of Jesus Christ from the Father on the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And darkness covered the face of the earth for three hours while Jesus hung on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. That's when his spiritual death occurred, separation from God the Father. And at that time, he paid the price for every single sin that will ever be committed in human history, no matter how heinous, no matter how unthinkable, no matter how uh, objectionable or obnoxious, every sin's been paid for so anyone can go to heaven on the basis of faith alone and Christ alone. <clears throat> Another verse that I want you to look at is 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, two or three books over. Uh, 
After the Pentateuch, you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, and then 2 Samuel. After Israel had entered the land, the promised land under Joshua, they went through uh, two or three centuries of spiritual instability. The whole cyclical pattern is covered in the book of Judges and 1 Samuel before the people finally became serious about doctrine. They would, one generation would, and the next generation would reject doctrine. Finally, they, uh, they began to be positive. They still had many pockets of rebellion. God provided them with a the king in Saul, and then when David became king, and under his, under his leadership, the nation expanded and entered its greatest period of prosperity under the period known as the United Kingdom under David and his son Solomon. Uh, David was a man known uh, after the heart of God. He had a tremendous uh, relationship with the Lord in spite of, uh, of his sin in many times. Uh, but David was one of the most spiritually mature believers in all of the Old Testament. And he was very concerned about the reputation of God. That's demonstrated by many of the Psalms. And he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He had a desire to build a permanent place for God, a permanent place for God's dwelling. And God said, no, you can't do that. Your son will, but you will not. But David could bring the Ark, which had been traveling around still in the temporary abode of the tabernacle, moving from place to place until this time, brought the Ark into Jerusalem. Now, remember, the Ark is the representation of the throne of God on earth in Israel. Look at 2 Samuel 6.1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So they're all lined up outside the highway going into the gates of Jerusalem. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So here again we're reminded that this is the throne of God the picture of the throne of God. And who can come into the presence of God? Only the high priest. It's a function of priesthood to come into the presence of God. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Now, these are priests. Now, one thing that I did not include in my rather crude representation of the ark of the covenant was the fact that there were rings that were set along the edge, about four rings, and they would run a pole through these rings, and they would carry the ark on their backs, on their shoulders, by these poles, four men, one on each corner, and they would transport the ark of God, but they were forbidden to touch the ark. The only one who, remember, the only one who could go into the presence of God in the tabernacle was the high priest, and the the punishment was death. So look at what happens in verse 4. So they brought it um, it being the new cart with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab which was on the hill and a hill was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating. This is worship. Worship is celebration with all kinds of instruments. So they're playing their instruments and they're singing hymns and psalms along the way and praising God. Notice verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly, nearly upset it. Now here's the scenario. You've got two oxen leading the cart. On the cart is the Ark of the Covenant. You've got Ahio going before, Uzzah's on the side, and they're going down a rough road. All of a sudden they hit a bump. The cart is jostled. The Ark of the Covenant shakes. Uzzah's afraid it's going to fall and he reaches out to stabilize it. And he's dead. Just like that. God doesn't fool around. God's not understanding of our human limitations. God immediately executed Uzzah on the spot for his irreverence, for his blasphemy. And David's response? Notice verse 8. David gets angry. He's out of fellowship because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Now the point here that I want to make once again is the exclusion of man from God over and over again. It is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God that is emphasized and the unrighteousness of man that is emphasized. That man cannot come into the presence of God on his own. He is excluded from the presence of God. Now, after several months, David again put forth the effort to move the ark 
and they once again uh, had incredible pomp and circumstance and had a tri- triumphal parade to bring the ark into into Jer- Jerusalem. And as they did that, it says in the scriptures that they sacrificed a sacrifice every 18 paces, um, or every every five five or six paces, which is about every 15 to 18 feet. Now just imagine that. All along the highway, all the way into Jerusalem, they're cutting the throats of bulls and goats and sheep. And that road is just one bloody mess. And it's on that blood that the ark is able to be taken into Jerusalem. So once again, we have the emphasis on sacrifice is the basis for getting into God's presence and resolving man's problem. Man, though, is ultimately basically excluded from God on his own. We see this emphasized many times in the, uh, in, in the Scriptures. For example, Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. So, we might ask, if man is totally and radically excluded from the presence of God, the throne of God, and can no longer have a conversation with God, on what basis then can man pray? Good works obviously aren't enough. Ritual. While it was certain rituals were prescribed in the Old Testament, rituals today aren't enough. Remember, the issue after the fall is the perfect righteousness of God. Man's point of contact with God is not the love of God, which is the view of the liberal theologians. But man's point of contact must be the righteousness and the justice of God. Because the righteousness, whatever the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, the righteousness of God must be satisfied before the justice of God can approve. And that is resolved through the great solution that God provides. And that is portrayed for us very graphically in Zechariah chapter 3. So turn with me to the third chapter of Zechariah, which is one of the so-called minor prophets in the Old Testament towards the end. Of your, of your Old Testament about the uh, third or fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. This is a very powerful passage. There are a lot of different doctrinal principles that are here, but we're just going to emphasize and talk about this in relation to our subject. Zechariah 3.1, Zechariah is the prophet here that is being uh, that God is revealing truth to. Says then he that is God showed me that is Zechariah, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now this isn't the Joshua who wrote the book of Joshua. This is a much later Joshua who is the high priest in Israel after their return from their Babylonian captivity. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Earlier I mentioned that when uh, it says that God walked in the garden, the Lord walked in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, that that was the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from John chapter 1 that no man has seen God at any time, God the Father. Only the only begotten Son of God, He has revealed Him. So Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of the Trinity. Throughout the Scriptures, whenever it speaks of a member of the Trinity, uh, of God walking with man, it's always Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The angel of the Lord is another term or title for the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. In some places, especially in Zechariah chapter 1, I believe, it talks about the angel of the Lord speaking to the Lord. So obviously they're two different people. In other places in the Old Testament, we have Gideon, for example, in Judges chapter 6, worshiping the angel of the Lord and not being rebuked because the angel of the Lord is indeed God Himself. So here we have, standing before the throne of God, the Supreme Court in heaven, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ on one hand, and Satan, the accuser, standing at his, that is, Joshua's right hand, to accuse him. So it's a courtroom scene. God the Father is on the throne. Jesus Christ is down here as the uh, advocate, defense attorney. And over here we have the prosecutor, uh, Satan, accusing the uh, believer of not having the right, uh, right, correct righteousness to stand before God's throne. So Satan stands at Joshua's right hand to accuse him in verse 2. And the Lord, that is Jesus Christ acting as an advocate, said to Satan, The Lord, God the Father, acting as judge, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is this, referring to Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. The filthy garments that Joshua is clothed in represent sin. Satan is accusing Joshua as being unworthy to come as a priest before God to present his petition. Satan is basically saying, how can this filthy man be a priest and represent sinners? Remember, Satan's role is to be the accuser of the brethren. He is our accuser in heaven. This scene takes place continually, again and again. And the main point that I want to emphasize here is the struggle over the right of Joshua the priest or any priest to enter God's presence. Satan is absolutely correct at this point that man has no righteousness of his own to give him credit in God's standing, in God's place. Joshua cannot come to the throne on the basis of his own works, his filthy garments. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our works of righteousness are as filthy garments. Man has no basis on his own to come into God's presence. So God resolves the problem. Look at verse 4. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. This is a picture of what happens to every believer at the moment of salvation. Here you are as a believer. You as an unbeliever. You have your minus R. You lack righteousness. Here is God. He is perfect righteousness and justice. You put faith alone in Christ alone at the cross and God the Father from the Supreme Court of Heaven God the Father imputes or credits to your account the perfect His own perfect righteousness. Because you have perfect righteousness it opens up a grace pipeline down which flow the blessings of God. God blesses the believer on the basis of His righteousness which the believer possesses not on the basis of anything we do. Our blessing from God never comes to us because of what we do. You, that's why you cannot gain an affirmative answer from God in your prayers because you follow the right pattern. I will emphasize later on that in prayer we are to persist in prayer. But that doesn't guarantee an affirmative answer. By our obedience to prayer, it simply to, to God's mandate for prayer, it simply means that we will have access to the throne of God and He will hear what we request. does not guarantee unaffirmative action. It's on the basis of this perfect righteousness of God that is given to us at the point of salvation that we are saved. For God then declares us to be righteous. Justification is not just as if I had never sinned. It doesn't wipe the slate clean. You're still a sinner. You still have a sin nature. You are still capable of committing anything you could have committed as an unbeliever. But God declares you righteous because you now have been given the free gift of the perfect righteousness of of Jesus Christ. And so on that basis, God declares us to be righteous and down the grace pipeline flow our blessings. We have various categories of blessings. We have logistical grace blessings. We have blessings that accrue to us because of our maturity, because as we grow and mature as believers and develop capacity, then God blesses us. He never blesses us beyond our capacity because that could spoil us and ruin us. God does not bless us because we have grown, but because we have grown we have the capacity to enjoy those blessings and then God blesses us. It is never on the basis of our works that God blesses us. And clean robes being put on Him. And that is a picture of imputation. That we are given the clean robes of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And He, the Lord Jesus Christ, spoke and said to those who were standing before Him, Remove the filthy garments from Him. Again he said, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, the payment for sin, and will clothe you with festal robes. So, what we see from this regarding prayer is that there is basically, toward man, antagonism and hostility in the throne room of God from Satan. He does not want us to pray, but we have access to God because God's righteousness and justice has solved the problem through love and grace and if we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we will have eternal, the, the perfect righteousness of God and eternal salvation. Now, one thing we learn from this is that prayer is part of spiritual warfare. And we see that Satan is involved in heaven in trying to prevent our prayers from getting to the throne room of heaven. 
We see the same scenario in the book of Job for different reasons and different things. We can imagine that when we come to heaven and we're going to pray that Satan is accusing us just like he accused Job. And the point that Satan is trying to make is that that person has no right to come to heaven. God, they're just doing this to try to bargain with you. All they want is for you to answer all their wishes. And there's all kinds of things going on related to spiritual warfare, I think, in heaven, which is part of the reason why we're told to persist in prayer. And we'll look at some passages related to that as we continue our study on prayer. Now, there are all of these restrictions we've seen in the Old Testament regarding entrance into God's presence. Only the priest could come into God's presence. Now, in the New Testament, in the church age, what we are told is that instead of having a specialized priesthood based upon physical requirements, in the New Testament, we have a universal priesthood. Every single believer is a priest. That means there's not one group that has access to God, but every single believer in the New Testament has access to God. Why? Because they have been given the perfect righteousness of Christ. And on that basis, because we have Jesus Christ as our high priest, we can enter into the very presence of God. So throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this emphasis on the exclusion of man because of his inherent sinfulness, but that God in His grace provided a solution. So no unbeliever can be heard by God in prayer. Prayer is for believers only. Now, having said that, not even every believer gets their prayers heard. Because when a believer sins, a believer is out of fellowship. Remember Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now the word for heart there is the word lave, which has to do with the inner part of the mentality of the soul. If I regard iniquity in my mind, in the most inner part of my mind, the Lord will not hear me. The word for regard in the Hebrew is the word for seeing. So if you take the time to reflect for self-examination, which is the concept in 1 Corinthians 11 for, for uh, confession, re- examining yourself to see that you are, uh, have confessed your sins, if you examine yourself, look on the inside, and see that there is iniquity, sin in your mind, then the Lord will not hear you. So the key is to confess that iniquity, that sin that you see. Now in the Old Testament... I want you to turn with me back again. We're going to pick up this concept again, trace it through the Old Testament, because this is a, an issue or something that has become an issue among some doctrinal churches and has become an issue for many believers. Now, I think I'm having a little problem with the scroll. But, um, and that is that how does a believer come into the presence of God? And some are teaching the concept that you don't really need to confess your sins because the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1.7. But the picture we see throughout Scripture is that, that not only can the, can the unbeliever not enter into the presence of God, but many believers cannot enter into the presence of God. There is something else other than salvation required before we can enter into the presence of God. And this is portrayed in the Old Testament. Look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. We're back again to the tabernacle. One way into the presence of God. Outer wall... The inner holy place divided into two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. Out here, we have the brazen altar where the sacrifice of the unblemished lamb is made portraying salvation. The next step is what we're looking at now, which is the the labor of bronze. Exodus 30, verse 17, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a labor of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. The tent of meeting is the... uh, refers to the holy place here, which is where the high priest would meet God at the throne of God, enthroned above the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. And Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. Now the word for wash is the Hebrew word, lachat. In Hebrew it looks like this. It is R-A- C-H-A-Z. Wachaz. And it means simply to wash, to bathe. As Incidentally, it is translated, uh, it means to cleanse also. To cleanse, to wash. It is, 
translated in the Greek, nipto. The, the Greek word in the Septuagint, now the, the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek in about the 2nd, 3rd century B.C. And the Greek word that they used to translate this was nipto. Now the disciples and many people at the time of Christ spoke Greek in, in Israel. Some still spoke, spoke Aramaic, but many of them couldn't even read Hebrew. So they had their uh, Greek Septuagint, their Greek translation of the Old Testament. In fact, many of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament follow the Septuagint as opposed to the Hebrew Masoretic text. And from that we know that they were familiar with their Bible. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was a, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit knew that this was a correct translation, so they just quoted from the Greek text. And the Greek word there is nipto. Now, this word is used in John chapter 13. In John 13, verse 5, 6, 8, 10, and 12, you have the word nipto. Remember that. We'll get back to it in just a, uh, just a few minutes. They washed their hands and their feet. And when they entered the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water that they may not die. What's the penalty again for entering God's presence without going through the right procedures? Death. When they, or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. Now that is a reference or symbolic of prayer. So they shall wash their hands and their feet that they may not die. In other words, the salvation is one thing but to enter the presence of God, there has to be this secondary cleansing represented by washing the hands and the feet, which is a picture of confession. Two things were necessary to enter the presence of God. A blood sacrifice depicting the future saving work of Christ on the cross. And two, the ritual washing of the hands and feet. And twice in this passage, the priests are warned that they must wash before entering the tent of meaning. Meeting. If not, they would surely die. Remember, Psalm 66:18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We cannot go into the presence of God with unconfessed sin, or God will not hear us. Now, the Old Testament imagery here is very important, talking about cleansing. Another word that is used for cleansing and in, the, uh, uh, in the Greek of the Septuagint is, is the word katharizo. And that verb also means, this one means to cleanse or to wash. Katharizo also means to cleanse or to purify. This is another word that is used frequently in the Old Testament. Let me scroll that up to make sure you can see that. Now turn with me from Exodus 20 over to John chapter 13. John 13 records what happens the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's at the Last Supper. They're getting ready to celebrate the Passover dinner. They're going to have fellowship together around a meal. Often throughout Scripture, eating together represents fellowship. Because you're sitting down together, you're enjoying one another's company, and this is a picture, a portrayal of fellowship. What is the first thing that happens before they have the meal? Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside His garments, and taking a towel, He girded Himself about. He wrapped the towel around Him, took off His main outer robe so that it would not be, become wet or dirty. And then He pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Verse 6, And so he came to Simon Peter. And he said to him, Peter says to the Lord, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? The word for wash is nipto. So we pick up that same imagery. Any Jew is going to catch on to this right away. John 13, 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Hard-headed Peter says, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. <laughs> so Peter overreacts. Well, Lord, no, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands. Wash my head. Just give me a bath, Lord. I'll just dive into that, that basin and uh, get clean all over. And Jesus said, He who has bathed, i.e., is representative of salvation. Total cleansing, total forgiveness of salvation. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. 
katharos. That's our Greek word here, the verb form katharizo, the noun katharos. But it is completely clean, purified. And you are purified, but not all of you. So the imagery that we see here is prior to the fellowship of the meal, prior to sitting down and having fellowship with the Lord, cleansing takes place. They're already saved, they're already washed, bathed completely, picturing salvation. But now their hands and their feet need to be washed. Their feet are washed. And why is this? Because it's a portrayal of confession. The necessity of confessing your sins, admitting your sins, acknowledging your sins to God the Father before having fellowship with Him. The point that's made here, two points are made. One, only Jesus can do the cleansing. He, for, he, he completely rejects Peter's offer. And number two, overall cleansing is accomplished at the cross when God the Father imputed all the sins of human history to Jesus Christ. One, only Jesus can do the cleansing. And two, overall cleansing is accomplished at the cross. When we come to 1 John, we'll see that 1 John 1.7 says the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. That's the basis. More specifically, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Overall cleansing is accomplished at the cross when God the Father imputed all the sins of human history to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And three, temporal cleansing, the result of the sins we confess, takes place daily. Now, this idea of confession before a meal is picked up again in 1 Corinthians 11.28. You don't have to turn there. When you get there, that's the passage that describes communion. And what are we told? Before communion, before they sit down and eat the Lord's Supper, a meal, what has to happen? The Apostle Paul says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Before you have the meal of fellowship with God, what has to take place? Self-examination. If, a man, if I regard iniquity, if I see iniquity, so that picks up the idea of self-examination. Again, we have these same elements in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Now, this is not a salvation verse. Often, you hear groups like Navigators and uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and many other groups use Revelation 3.20 is a salvation verse, but it's not. It reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine with me and he with me. Now, how do we know this is not talking about unbelievers? Because in verse 19, it's addressed to those whom I love. And the Greek is phileo, those whom I love. It's not agapao. And phileo is a word for more intimate type of love in the Greek. And God and the only objects of God's phileo love in all of the New Testament are believers. God does not have phileo love for unbelievers. He only has this intimate love for believers. So he's talking to believers, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Why? They're out of fellowship. They're sinners. Be zealous therefore and repent. Repent does not mean to be sorry for your sins. Repent means to change your mind. It's from the Greek word metanoia. Noeo is the same root as nous, meaning mind or mentality. It means to change your mind about your sin. What, what do you do when you change your mind about sin? You admit it, acknowledge it to God the Father. So, verse, uh, Revelation 3.20 is talking about confession. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, this is symbolic of, of confession. I will come into him and will dine with him, sup, and He with me. It's the idea of a meal, a fellowship. If there's fellowship, when, when we sin, we exclude Christ from our life. When we confess our sins, we admit Him. He comes back into our life. At the same time, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So once again, fellowship is equated with dining. And then as we wrap up, we see that in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, is our basic passage on confession. Verse 7 it says, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, that is, if you're a believer and you're in fellowship and the light of God's Word is in you, this is the same image as, as if we abide in Christ and His Word abides in us. It's fellowship, doctrine, abiding in the believer. Light is representative of truth. Light in the believer. Uh, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the basis. is what happens at the cross. But if we say that we have no sin, denial... 
We're deceiving ourselves, self-deception, part of arrogance, and the truth is not in us. We've rejected doctrine and we're claiming that we're perfect. 1 John 1, 9. We have in the first part the condition, if we, so for, uh, first class condition, maybe, our third class condition, maybe we will, maybe we won't. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, katharizo again, to cleanse or to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the procedure. Confession, homo legeo, does not mean to be emotional about your sins or that you have to feel sorry for them or anything else. Now, you may. I mean, we'll, we'll look at some things in a couple of uh, sessions later about a prayer of forgiveness that sometimes we may be very emotional. That's not what impresses God. God is not impressed with our emotion at all. The issue is what Christ did, not what we do. The issue is not how you feel about sin, but how God feels about sin. And the issue is that all we have to do is admit or acknowledge. That's what confession means. If you go to court, somebody goes to court and they've shot somebody, and they're glad they did it, and they sit down here on the front row and they say, Judge, I did it. I'm glad I did it. If I had the opportunity, I'd do it again. But I did it. Have they confessed their guilt? You bet they have. They're going to get their punishment. And if you're a believer and you come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I did this. I'm glad I did it. I'm going to do it again. You're going to be in fellowship for that long and you'll be right out again. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're arrogant in the process and that's not going to get you very far. And that's the trouble with a lot of believers is that they, 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 they just bounce back and forth. They're in fellowship and out of fellowship. In fellowship, out of fellowship. And they never grow. Being in fellowship is like playing, being on a football team and being on the field. When you sin, you're out of the game. You're out, you sit on the bench. You can't advance in yardage. You can't score. You don't have anything to do with what's going on in the field. When you confess your sins, you're back on the field. But you can stand on the field and you won't go anywhere. You have to then apply certain principles. You have to run. You have to pass. You have to do various things in order to score. For the believer to score, he has to apply doctrine in his life. Just being in fellowship doesn't get you anywhere. It just puts you in a position where you can grow, learn doctrine, grow, and pursue spiritual maturity. So you start by confessing your sins, admitting them to God. You're back in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, in a position where you can grow and mature. So in conclusion, we have seen, first of all, that there is no access to the throne of grace unless a person is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we have seen that carnal believers cannot get their prayers heard, except for a prayer of confession. Psalm 66, 18. Third, we have seen that in the Old Testament, Levitical priests had to wash their hands and feet before they entered the holy place. This is a picture of confession. Fourth, we've seen that every believer in the church age is a royal priest, not a Levitical priest, 1 Peter 2.5. Fifth, we've seen that every royal priest must follow the same procedure as Levitical priests in terms of confession of sin before prayer is heard. Sixth, confession is to God the Father alone. It's nobody else's business what you've done. Uh, you do not confess to other people to assuage your guilt complex because then you just give them a basis for gossip or anger or bitterness or any number of uh, mental attitude sins. So the issue is confession to God the Father alone. Once known sins are acknowledged, then there is complete cleansing from all sins. Known sins, unknown sins, remembered sins, and forgotten sins. And then finally, because of this, because of our, our, our sins are, are forgiven, we have confidence in drawing near to God. We're cleansed. So we can come before the throne of grace and... One reason people do not pray is because they lack confidence. So tonight when we come back, we'll start off with six reasons why people don't pray. And then we're going to look at the confidence that we have and the fact that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this tremendous privilege to pray and that prayer changes things. And that the Bible says over and over again that prayer, that God has many blessings for us that are contingent upon our prayer. The prayer truly does make a difference. You have not because you ask not. God says, if you want certain things, you must ask me for them or I won't give them to you. I'm just waiting to give them to you. I want to give them to you. I've had from eternity past, I have set these things aside to give you during your life on earth. But if you do not ask for them, 
I will not give them to you. Prayer is mandated of every believer. So tonight we'll come back and we'll talk about prayer, the, the contingent blessings that God has for us and how we receive those through prayer. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we recognize that every believer has privacy before God in terms of their own spiritual life. And every person has the opportunity and the privilege to hear the gospel and respond to it on their own without pressure, without feeling guilt, and without being manipulated by other people. The issue, if you are an unbeliever here this morning, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as your substitute. All that you have to do to receive that free gift of eternal life provided by Him is to put your trust alone in Christ alone. You do not have to do anything. You do not have to perform good works. You do not have to join a church. You do not have to give money. In fact, if you try to add anything to faith, you will destroy the faith, you will nullify it, and will not receive the free gift of eternal life. For if we try to impress God with something, God will not give us the free gift. So salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And all you have to do is in the privacy of your own soul, utter the simple prayer of salvation. Father, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. That's all that is necessary. If you're a believer here this morning, the issue for you has to do with whether or not you want to pursue spiritual growth or not. Too often believers are satisfied with very little expectations in their spiritual life. They do not care about God. They do not care about living their life to glorify God. They're just glad they're going to go to heaven and now they want God to leave them alone. But God never leaves a child alone. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges alive every son with a whip. The issue for the believer is spiritual growth. The issue for the believer is to take what he learns and to apply it in his life that he might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study your word this morning and ask that we would be reminded of these things throughout the coming week and that we would indeed remember that prayer is mandated of us and that we would devote ourselves to prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.